Welcome to Champions of Care, a champion chair podcast and your go-to resource for industry-leading insights regarding medical seating and their applications. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Champions of Care, a champion chair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. It's good to be back chatting the healthcare industry, and I'm really glad that you're joining us here for another episode as we explore some intersections of various industries with care operations, care design, and the broader care industry as a whole. Before we get into the meat of today's topic and introduce our guest, I want to make sure that you're getting all of the champion chair content you desire. Make sure you're all caught up on previous episodes, plus making sure that you don't miss out on future thought leadership. So make sure you're heading to our website, championchair.com. Again, championchair.com. For more information on how we fit into the uh, larger healthcare industry, uh, but also for more champion chair thought leadership, like episodes of our podcast, articles, videos, and more, you can also subscribe to Champions of Care on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations, plus notifications when we bring on new guests and have some more great conversations. All right, team, let's jump in. On today's episode of Champions of Care, we're going to be bringing the art and the science of interior design to a care context. And more specifically, we're going to be breaking down how medical furnishings impact the interior design process from the very beginning of a new healthcare facility's conception and why it's so important to center not only the patient in the design, of course, but also the medical staff and how they're going to operate and exist day in and day out in this space. An efficient and welcoming space definitely makes for a better care experience for everyone. That's something that probably uh, patients and professionals in the space can agree on. And I'm sure our guest today would agree as well, but we're going to be turning to her for the real insights today. So I'll stop pontificating here. Let's go ahead and welcome our guest, Joanna Terry, Director of Vertical Markets at National Business Furniture, which is an all-in-one commercial furniture company supplying furnishings of all sorts across markets like healthcare and also government, education, hospitality, and more. Joanna Terry, great to have you on. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure getting to interview you here today and pull from your insights. I want to start by just better highlighting what those insights are for our audience. As a director of vertical markets, you obviously have a lot of experience working with furnishing different niche environments. So can you give us a breakdown of some of those verticals that you've had a hand in supporting and then also just give us a basic overview of your journey into uh, landing as a director of vertical markets at a, a furnishings company like NBF. Sure. So the verticals that I'm responsible for are, of course, healthcare, which is what we'll be talking about today. I also am responsible for education. So that would be both K-12 and higher education and then our hospitality environments. So my background is interior design, and I did that for many, many years. And I just, I fell in love with healthcare design. It's this beautiful intersection of art and science. And so I, I managed our healthcare vertical for many years, and they've just decided to kind of add a little more to my plate. But interestingly enough, hospitality education and healthcare, they sound very different. The needs are really not dissimilar, especially in the age of COVID. 
expand on that for us a little bit. Where are you seeing some intersections of similar needs when making key decisions around designing a healthcare space and some of the other verticals you work in? Sure. So healthcare's had a long push towards hospitality interiors. You know, we want that patient space or really any space to be welcoming and warm. We don't want it to be cold and institutional. So there's been, you know, years and years of progress of making those environments more along the lines of what we would see in a hospitality interior. But the past two years have really had our education and our hospitality spaces perhaps rethinking what they're doing in terms of material and furniture choices. In the past, you know, we were excited for schools to be fun and welcoming to kids, but material selections maybe were an afterthought. And so schools and hospitality spaces are rethinking about how they're cleaning their materials and the impact of those harsher cleaners on their furniture. So they're perhaps moving a little toward the healthcare space. They're thinking more about how to separate people, but how to do that in a welcoming way, one that isn't alienating, giving people space when they want it, letting people be together when they're ready for that. Now, if you had to analyze the impact of your career on your day-to-day work, how would you say that uh, your journey through those different vertical touch points has given you a more holistic approach to interior design, but also understanding what is different, right? Maneuvering the nuances of verticalized interior design. I think every environment is its own unique challenge. I think it's dangerous to generalize that every education or every hospitality or every healthcare environment is the same. They all present their own unique set of challenges. So what's enjoyable to me is to travel to different environments, to see how rural health manages something perhaps differently than a high acuity, you know, urban health center. Same thing with schools. K to 12 behaves very, very differently than something in our higher education. And, you know, hospitality environments are completely unique. They're all trying to create a memorable aesthetic. And and I think some of those things come through for healthcare too. You know, when we go into a healthcare facility, it can be very stressful. But, you know, as a designer, I want you to feel good about where you're getting your care. I want you to feel welcomed. I want you to feel safe. And so I take a lot of the lessons that we learn from education and from hospitality, and I try to apply those to healthcare projects. You mentioned some nuances even within the healthcare space, differences in designing for a rural community or uh, a smaller institution versus, like you said, a, a high traffic, you know, major surgery or oncology center, let's say, right? So can you get a little deeper into those nuances, even within just healthcare, right? How does healthcare interior design introduce some varied nuances within itself to interior design standards? You know, I find, and again, I don't like to generalize, but, you know, rural health centers are really community connected. People are there regularly. They see the same caregivers over and over and really want their interior design to reflect that community. Um, They want it to feel welcoming. They want people to come there for more than just healthcare. They often host community meetings, things like that. So it has to be a very connected space where an urban high acuity center is all about volume. We're seeing a really, really wide variety of patients there. And so we have to make sure that we're accommodating everyone equally and safely and comfortably where, you know, rural health might be a little more homogeneous. So it's an interesting challenge. And and then you go into clinical care and that's a whole different world altogether. You know, when you look at the different types of clinical spaces that we work in, primary care is extremely different from, say, emergent medicine or pediatrics. 
Now, if you could uh, give us a peek into the interior design, I guess, process itself, how do some of these nuances around different projects and understanding the demographics, the material conditions of the space, how do these nuances impact the initial design conception? So some of those first steps of analyzing the project and making key early decisions. Of course. The first thing to do is ask just a lot of questions. I want to know who that patient population is. I want them to tell me the kind of folks that are coming into the space and using it. I want to know what their current challenges are. You know, what isn't working? What is working? And I want to know what's most important to them. If they're designing a new facility, you know, what is the main goal of the project beyond, of course, taking care of their patients? Sometimes they want an improved aesthetic. Sometimes they're looking to mitigate some risk or they're finding that current material and furniture selections aren't holding up in their environment. So I've got some challenges there. But I also want to know details. What are they cleaning with? You know, how does that impact their day-to-day? I want to really explore nursing workflows and, and workflows for patients. How are they moving patients through that space? And what's the most efficient way to do that? You know, I know you mentioned in your introduction that we would talk about taking care of staff. And one of the biggest things that we can do as an interior designer is to take care of a staff member, make sure that their work is as easy and efficient as possible, making sure that we avoid unnecessary steps, that we put equipment where they need it. A rested caregiver, a caregiver that isn't overly stressed out is a better caregiver, and that gives us a better patient experience. So, you know, I I focus heavily on what they need and what they want. And so many times those caregivers are such a strong advocate for their patients. They're going to tell me my patients have a hard time operating recliner. My patients can't get from point A to point B easily. We have a struggle with wayfinding. So we take all those things into consideration and we try to give everyone the best environment possible. Now, who's often a part of those conversations then, either on the care facility side or the patient or the community side? And who do you think should be involved in those early stage conversations? It does have to be holistic. If we're talking Mm. about a small clinic, you know, I'm generally dealing with a care staff, potentially with a facilities person, um, an architect, potentially a third party design firm in some cases. But when we get into the larger projects, there's often an owner's representative in the room. And if they really are doing something unique and interesting, I love it when they bring patients in. But to me, the most important thing is to have the staff involved. They're the ones that have to work in this environment and they're the ones that are really going to give me the information to make it a success. They know what works, they know what doesn't, and they're very, very vocal about it. And that's one of the things I love the most is kind of finding out what they love about what they do, and and they're so passionate, and what they want to see for their patients. They advocate so strongly for them. So it's wonderful to get their involvement, because otherwise I I just can't create a great environment without that input. All right, so now what I want to do is get some uh, more specific insights on how you view the impact of the work that you do, and breaking down some of your perspectives on the methodologies of healthcare interior design. So from your experience in the space and the successful projects that you've had a hand in, how do you see a combination of the gear itself, the equipment or the furnishings themselves, coupled with the aesthetics of a care facility? How do both of these combined impact patient comfort and to what degree? 
I think any of us who have spent time in healthcare environments can find them sometimes intimidating. There's a lot of machines and monitors and that lighting can be harsh and sometimes the temperature's not ideal or there's, you know, odors and that can be really intimidating to a patient. So we have to just, we have to live with those things because that's what's needed to deliver proper care. But the the question for the design community is how can I mitigate those things in a positive way and give those patients a a comforting experience as much as possible. I can't take away the equipment. I can't take away, you know, the bright lighting in some cases, but I can hopefully give patients a sense of control. You know, I, I like to do that with providing some some elements of biophilic design. I like to give views to the outside wherever it's appropriate. If I can't do that, I like to provide some artwork that's soothing and nature-driven. There's a lot of studies out there that show that when we do those type of things in interior design, we get better outcomes. We have a shorter stay. Patients feel more satisfied with their care when they're not feeling like an object, when they're feeling like a person. So we try to make sure that the person is at the center of that design. And when you can't give views to the outside, artwork is is really, really important. Using natural colors, not making everything so sterile. It's not always so easy in purely procedural areas, but if we're in a waiting space or an exam space, if I can give someone the ability to perhaps choose where or what they sit in, um, perhaps adjust things to their liking, it makes a huge difference. And can you expand on that difference then for us? How have you found that centering patient comfort in, again, the equipment choices and the aesthetic visualization of the space? How does that impact the entire care experience for the patient? And do you have any examples you can share? I'm just going to take, for an example, a waiting room, because that's where patients spend a lot of time, perhaps not during COVID, but... um, Fair. Let's take an old style waiting room where we had long bus station rows of seating and, you know, it was perhaps very crowded. And if you were using an assistive device like a walker or a wheelchair, maybe you didn't have a place to sit and it was chaotic and you worried about potentially being forgotten after you checked in. What I like to do in a, in a waiting room today is to provide a lot of choice. So I like to create small groupings. I don't like big, long rows of chairs. Creating groupings lets someone choose some privacy if they feel like they need that, or they can be with friends and family if that's more comforting to them. I like to create areas where like if they need a distraction, like watching television, that's something that's available to them. But if we need quiet, they can go to a different part of the waiting space and have that quiet for themselves different kinds of seating also make a difference. You you might not think that, but if someone's a larger person, we might need some bariatric seating. We need spaces for wheelchairs and walkers. Um, I also like to use something called an orthopedic or a hip chair, not just for orthopedic patients. It's a higher seat. So that allows anybody who has a hard time getting up and down to do that more comfortably and more safely. So somebody who perhaps is pregnant or just, you know, has some a hard time getting all the way down, getting all the way up. If I can make that better for them, they're going to go into that appointment or that care, you know, episode more relaxed. And more relaxed means better vitals. It means they're not so stressed out talking to their caregiver. And ultimately, we hope that that gives them a better experience overall. And they don't think, gosh, that was horrible. I hate going to the doctor. I want to create that pleasant environment where maybe it's not the best part of their day, but it certainly isn't awful. Now, if you had to look back on some of your work, do you find that it's intuitive to connect those patient-led 
design standards with also having a space that is safe and functional for the medical staff as well? Or I guess maybe more specifically, where do those design choices often overlap during the design process? And is there ever any friction there or any unique challenges to solve to make sure that a new space can treat both the staff and the patient with thought and care? I, you know, I don't think that those are opposing things. I think yeah. staff and patient care, you know, they kind of go together. Um, if I can make the space efficient for the staff, it's probably going to be better for the patient. But let's take, for example, um, a recliner, because that's something like, say, we're inpatient. We might have somebody in a recliner. They might be in an infusion environment. If that recliner is hard to use or it isn't intuitive, they're going to be ringing that call button. And that takes a nurse away from caring from another patient or charting or doing whatever that might be. So, you know, we, what can I do to eliminate any of those unnecessary calls? How can I let that patient manage themselves in a comfortable way, in a safe way, in a way that they feel good about and in a way that protects my staff's time? So, you know, a recliner just happens to be a good example of that, but it might be, you know, making sure that the controls for the television are in, a, in an appropriate place and they're easy to use and understand, making sure that there's a patient information board that gives them all the information that they need to, to sort of self-manage as much as is safe and as possible, because a, a rested staff is going to deliver better patient care. You know, patients don't want to necessarily be ringing that call button every five minutes, but if they can't do it themselves, they have to. Patient and staff needs, they're two sides of the same coin, I think. Um, what patients want is something that's, they want to feel safe. They want to feel cared for. They want to feel trust in their environment and their caregivers. And staff want to deliver that experience. And it's really, really tough to do that when you're running to and fro, answering call button after call button. If I can eliminate some of that, I know I've done a good job. Could you also expand a bit on your personal approach then in bridging those two worlds in practice, right? The world of designing for the patient as well as the world of designing for the staff itself. What are some of your approaches to you know, designing the right equipment choices, making sure to center thoughtful communication, or just doing some of your own thoughtful analysis of a care facility's goals and how to bridge those two worlds? What's your approach? I definitely like to spend a lot of time at the site before a project, especially if it's an existing site where we're renovating. I want to see how it flows, how it runs, what things are working, what things aren't. But I think the key is, again, to go back to those staff members and have a conversation about how they work, where they see some breakdowns in patient flow. You know, over the, the past two years, I have unfortunately had some inpatient experiences. So it's very interesting from the patient's perspective. I, I am grateful for that because it did teach me a lot about what is it like to be in that hospital bed, interact with the staff on a very different level. So it's it's interesting to lay there and, and to look around the room and say, well, I would have made a different choice if I if I were just designing this room. Um, but it, it's such good if you can put yourself in that patient's shoes, and sometimes that means doing a mock-up, you might do a mock-up exam room if you're doing a large clinic or a patient room, and making sure that everything's kind of taped out so we can interact with it in somewhat real time. It's not always possible to do. We don't always have the budget for that or the time, but if we can get a patient through there and, and say, this is, this is what our plan is, how do you feel about it? If we can get staff through there and say, okay, pretend you're working, we're doing a procedure, is this flow going to work for you? It's so valuable to try to do things in real time. We can only do so much with drawings and to show 
pictures and things like that, if they're not interacting with products or materials or furniture in real time, we could get to a situation where it's installed and they're like, oh, it's not going to work. You know, we didn't anticipate this step or this problem or the fact that this gurney isn't going to fit into the room because we didn't plan for those things. We've kind of already touched on this, but I want to just do some more compare and contrasting here. Can you break down some examples of how those interior design strategies you just mentioned are made even more granular, depending on the nuances of each care environment? So I bring up again, you know, oncology treatment as an example, primary care, emergency rooms, right? How do you approach yourself as a professional analyzing some of the strategies for a successful interior design implementation in some of those different spaces with those different nuances? And those are really, really different environments. So oncology, people are there for a long time. It can be really, really, really stressful. So I do like to create semi-private spaces where folks Mm -hmm. have the choice if they're having a hard day or they just need some quiet and alone time that they have the ability to give themselves some privacy. That might be a cushion or that might be a curtain. It might be a divider that can be moved back and forth. But then if they're feeling like they want some support from their fellow patients or they want to engage with others, they can pull that back and have that engagement, have that talk. And it's a positive distraction. But you have to give people that choice. I like to add comfort elements. So sometimes that means in oncology that we add heat and massage to a recliner. Maybe that means that we have a just, you know, like a little built-in television in the in the bay where somebody can watch what they want that's positive to distract. We certainly have um, internet access so people can work or, you know, engage with their family members. The recliner, honestly, there is one of the most important things. That's where that person's going to sit for potentially four or five hours. It's got to be specifically designed for oncology. And that means making sure that it's comfortable, but making sure that it's safe And what I mean by that is safe to transfer folks in and out. So if somebody comes in and they're perhaps in a wheelchair, how am I going to get them safely into that recliner? So I want to make sure that I've got a transfer arm that's safe and comfortable and easy to use. But I also want to make sure that we've got wide, wide armrests where people can put their their arm while they're receiving that infusion. And it's comfortable, not a hard surface, but also safe to clean. So you asked about primary care. That's someplace where we really worry about accommodation for everybody because everybody comes to a primary care physician, right? Um, So we have lots of age differences and size differences and ability differences. And I have to make sure that I'm accommodating everybody safely because a mom with two kids needs a different kind of seating arrangement than perhaps someone who's elderly and has a hard time getting around. So I'm planning for space and planning for people to be comfortable but also offer some amenities where I can. Can I give people a coffee station or a water station? Make them feel a little more at home. Get them ready for their procedure. You know, if we have the ability to give them a small table where they might fill out some forms as opposed to trying to do it on a clipboard, that's maybe a little more comfortable. So really creating that that choice is so, so important, especially in primary care. And then you, you mentioned emergency medicine. That is a tough environment. It's busy, it's chaotic, it's stressful. Furniture there and and interiors in general just get really, really abused. It's 24-7 and it's cleaned frequently and harshly because we often have people coming in that are injured or, you know, acutely ill. So it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough furniture, but it can't be institutional. So we really focus on, you know, the proper materials that are going to hold up in those type of environments. But more from a patient-centered perspective, 
I like to offer some respite areas. If I can have smaller spaces or smaller rooms within that emergency department where perhaps families can get together and talk about their loved one's care, they can meet with a doctor or a caregiver and get that update in a space that allows them time to process those feelings and reflect and make a good decision, that's important. If I can give access to the outdoors easily, that also, you know, somebody can step outside, catch their breath, make a phone call. That's really, really helpful. But then we think about the staff and we make sure that the staff is safe because those, again, are highly emotionally charged spaces and people sometimes aren't in their best state of mind there. So creating a way for staff to feel safe without alienating them from the patients that are coming in the door is really, really important. And so we can do that without necessarily glassing it in. We just want to create some barriers that make everyone feel safe, make everybody feel comfortable. And then just to intersect some more timely context here, have there been any challenges for you as of late maneuvering, designing for either more nuanced spaces or just more generally your your work as a whole since the start of COVID? Has that introduced any new dynamics that you're still maneuvering or any kind of reframing of existing approaches now with fresh context? It is, um, it is a new world. It is a new world for sure. You know, healthcare has always been really, you know, as an industry, they've always been conscious of infection prevention. But I think the last two years have shown us that perhaps we need to rethink some of the spaces that folks gather. So I'm seeing certainly people have taken chairs out of the waiting room. They've spaced them out. They've stopped allowing visitors to come with patients. You know, you, you don't necessarily get to have anyone with you. I don't know that that's the friendliest approach. If I'm going for a a procedure, I'm meeting with a doctor, I might want someone with me that might make me feel a little bit better. So I'm seeing a trend towards something called self-rooming, meaning that when you arrive at the clinic, you don't go to a waiting room at all. You go immediately to an exam room and that takes you away from other people. So it, it hopefully helps with infection transmission. But if you're not interfacing with others, maybe it allows you the ability to bring somebody with you as opposed to, you know, having an extra person sitting in that waiting room, potentially creating a hazard. So, you know, things like that have been much more popular. For a little while there, we were having folks wait in their cars and being called in. But that, you know, I think everybody realizes that that's not the friendliest approach. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't create a welcoming space, you know, when you're sitting in your car and you're just waiting for that phone to ring. So I think there's safer ways. When I do a waiting room now, if it's big enough, I like to create something called sick well segregation. So if I can say, okay, someone's really not feeling well and they're here because they're ill, I'm going to sit them over here. And somebody who's coming in for just preventative care or checkup, whatever, we might go to the left. We keep those two patient populations separate. And we do that a lot in pediatrics. We try to keep sick kids away from well kids. We should do that with adults too. Let's not put somebody with the flu or with COVID right next to somebody who's just coming in to get some blood work done. It's an easy way to prevent some of that infection transmission. All right. I really appreciated your perspective so far. Uh, This has been really, really insightful, Joanna. I've got one last question here for you before we just open it up for final thoughts, but being a champion chair podcast, I want to get your thoughts on how recliners or stretcher chairs, and maybe even more specifically champion chairs, recliners and stretcher chairs factor into some of your design processes. So again, when it comes to specific equipment, how does integrating these kinds of medical furnishings, recliners, stretcher chairs, other kinds of seating, how does this affect your design process and how do you strategize around using those effectively? 
So if we take a recliner, for example, especially in an oncology situation, you know, that's kind of the heart of the care environment. That's where someone spends their time. And I I just, I won't take a risk with something that isn't specifically designed for that. So when we talk about Champion, one of the things I value about what they provide is that they've specifically designed it with these high use, high acuity environments in mind, but yet it's comfortable and approachable. And one of the things I think patients value about what they do is that that chair is comfortable to sit in, but it's still friendly to the staff. I have something like a transfer arm. I have Trendelenburg, which is, you know, putting somebody's feet over their heart so that, you know, if we have a crash, that's somebody can be put in a recovery position easily. You know, we have big casters so we can transport folks around safely. So it has all those things that I check off. Um, There's a lot of companies out there that make recliners and a lot of them that do a good job, but I want someone who specializes in it. It's important and it's too expensive of a piece to not be put into place without forethought. And so, you know, a lot of folks think these are pieces that don't necessarily integrate with the overall design plan. They're clinical. I don't find that to be the case. Someone who's like someone like Champion, they they work with a lot of textile mills. So I can I can take a textile and integrate it with the rest of the facility so that it looks like it belongs there. I can do softer colors. I don't have to do just a single solid. I can do something beautiful and functional and make it really friendly for the patients and the staff. So that's something that I really look for when I'm checking off the boxes on what sort of equipment goes into a space. It has to be built for that environment. I'm not going to take the chance on something that isn't tried and tested. All right. Now on that note, let's open it up to some final thoughts here, Joanna, as we wrap. Thank you again for all your insights so far. But I guess yeah, as we close the show, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with, whether that be, you know, some advice for how to approach uh, designing their own facility spaces or renovating their spaces for this new healthcare reality post-COVID, or just any final thoughts on how you approach your design process? You know, I think anyone who does healthcare design is really thoughtful about their approach. We know this is an environment where we really can have an impact on people. It isn't it isn't as simple as putting some cubes in an office and, you know, telling people go work there. A healthcare facility is so, so personal. And, you know, we all, I think any of us who do this professionally are designing for, for our loved ones. You know, I, I'm designing a space for the people that I love because I want it to be the best that it can be. I want it to be as stress-free as possible for the staff. And I want the patients to have as good of an experience as they possibly can be. My only piece of advice would be, to really choose your materials carefully. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you if you install a beautiful environment and everybody loves it and it's comfortable and it's functional, but those materials don't hold up to the harsh cleaners that we're using in the COVID era, it's all for naught. Do your research, partner with your textile manufacturers, partner with your furniture manufacturers. They have the experience. They know what works and what doesn't. Lean on them. And, and choose the best materials for that environment to make sure that that project looks beautiful three, five, ten years out. Yeah, very important to be thinking long term, especially, I mean, you brought it up with the recliners, but these aren't cheap investments, uh, especially yeah. for something quality. And you don't really want to be buying equipment that you're going to have to swap every couple of years. You should be investing in something that is resilient and that centers the patient experience, staff experience, and couples all of that into a holistic strategy. So right. it's exciting stuff. I, I really appreciate you 
giving us all these insights and walking us through your approach and experience around interior design. I think there was a lot to learn for our audience here. So Joanna Terry, Director of Vertical Markets at National Business Furniture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all your insights today. It's really been a pleasure. And if folks want to find out more about some of the work that National Business Furniture is doing in healthcare or any of your other verticals, or maybe they just want to get in touch, how can they do so? I'm certainly on LinkedIn, but my email here is Joanna Terry, of course, Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A-T as in Tom, at nbf.com. Please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer questions. Welcome any feedback, certainly. All right. Fantastic and easy enough. Joanna Terry, thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for watching and listening to another episode of Champions of Care, a champion chair podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want to listen to previous episodes or you want to make sure you don't miss out on future thought leadership like this one, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to Champions of Care and make sure you're heading to our website, championchair.com. Again, championchair.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Champions of Care.